Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the February 20th, 2024 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my primary coverage continues. First guest will be Dr. Nancy Watkins, education professional and Orange County Board of Education candidate running for trustee in Area 3. In the second segment is financial technology entrepreneur Max Nkupina, who is running as a Republican in the California 47th Congressional District. Let's start right away. In the March 5th primary election, Orange County voters will choose three of five trustees on the Orange County Board of Education. My guest in this segment is Dr. Nancy Watkins, candidate in Area 3 of the Orange County Board of Education. She is challenging Ken Williams, whose district previously encompassed the UCI community and beyond. Area 3 includes Fullerton, Brea, Placentia, Yorba Linda, Orange, Foothill Ranch, Villa Park, Central and North Irvine, Portola Hills, Anaheim Hills, portions of Lake Forest, and Tustin. Dr. Watkins is challenging the incumbent board chair, Ken Williams, in a district adjacent to our current one. She will be the only candidate that I will be able to fit in this compact primary broadcast schedule. Mari Barkey represents the district in which this station is located. My interview of her is available on May 17, 2020, podcast on askaleader.com. When Ken Williams earlier represented our district, I interviewed him, which is archived on the January 21st, 2020 date. Now, a little about my guest, Dr. Nancy Watkins. She is an educator, a leadership consultant, coach, and facilitator. She serves as an assistant professor at Cal State Fullerton, director of the doctoral program, and teaches educational leadership in the College of Education and Pedagogy and Leadership courses at several other colleges. Specializing in leadership, education policy, and educational access and opportunities, Dr. Watkins was a K-12 educator for over 30 years, working and teaching in California public schools. She's been honored as Teacher of the Year at both site and district levels and served on the Committee of Accreditation through the California Commission on Teaching Credentialing from August 2007 to June 2015, working to ensure integrity in teacher preparation programs. Dr. Watkins completed her bachelor's degree at UC Santa Barbara in political science with a dance minor her master's in public policy from Claremont Graduate University and her educational leadership doctorate from UC Irvine and the California State University Joint Doctoral Program. She is a Fulbright scholar and a presenter at several state and national conferences. She joins me in studio where we're recording this on February 9th. Welcome to Ask Leader, Dr. Nancy Watkins. Thank you, it's wonderful to be here. Well, I'm glad to have this one office here. So first, I know it's obvious, but it's going to glean some really important sort of takes and insights about you. Why are you running for this office? The process, the individuals who may have approached you, those kinds of factors and details, please. Thank you. So I was actually reflecting on this last night because we are 25 days away from 
March 5th, which is our election day. At the time of the recording this, when this will be broadcast, it will be even closer. It'll be even closer. And as I was thinking about starting this process uh, of being a candidate, you know, I'm a little surprised at myself for deciding to to. to take this run on. Uh, it was over a year ago, and I'd been observing the Orange County Board of Education for several years, partly in my work with the school district where I retired from. And I started to notice some trends that were concerning to me at the county level. I also was very sensitive to the school board politics that were beginning to occur nationally and locally. So the awareness was was heightened. Which district were you I, I was I spent the bulk of my career in Placentia Yorba Linda Unified oh, School gosh, District. Oh gosh, that's in my some later questions. Okay, so so you were you were observing many rings in I don't want to call it a circus because that's being a bit demeaning, but may, you you can call it that if you want. But but so there were so many ways in which this ideological sort of uh, front line is is being dealt with. Yeah. So okay, so your priorities then um, you just mentioned. Uh, Placentia Yorba Linda School Unified School District. It's inside this area three, and it's certainly been put on the map. It's been put on the map in terms of local media coverage, the UCLA anti-critical race theory mapping. There's this has been like a big case study nationally. What's been going on? So, what are your priorities? Were you to be elected to represent Area 3 on the Orange County Board of Education? My top priority is to ensure that the students that are under the jurisdiction of the county board, the most vulnerable kids in Orange County, these are the kids that are in alternative education, uh, the juvenile hall education program, and in special needs education. I want to make sure that those children have representation from the county board. The county board symbolically sets a pace for many of the other local districts. But in order to have safe, strong, and effective schools, we have to start with the schools within the jurisdiction. That's my top priority. So how much lip service does the current Orange County Board of Education give to that demographic? They don't ever speak about the children under their direct jurisdiction. They don't visit the schools of the children in their direct jurisdiction, and they have almost, from my observation, an adversarial relationship with the Orange County Department of Education and the teachers that oversee the county schools. Well, it's an off-ramp I want to take briefly with you, though. So if we ignore the alternative school student demographic is there a, a potential pipeline to some carceral institutions which are a an opportunity cost for those individuals that aren't getting a, a more consideration in public schools there is then also a hit on the general public budget for the expense of incarcerating people who've fallen out of the traditional services, educational services. And there's lots of research that supports that. And this, this is another thing that I've done quite a bit of research and work on is the access and opportunities and how do we break those prison to pipe or pipe school to pipeline prison, uh, school to prison pipeline um, that, that we do see that shows up in the research. So, so many of the wonderful programs that we see in our local schools around career technical education, um, social emotional learning, students in the county schools would benefit from additional attention to those areas because you're right we want to 
uh, you know, break the cycle and offer students opportunities to live up to their full potential. So if you are ignoring those students in the county schools, then you are catering to a different demographic and not who you should be looking at, not who you could be helping. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Dr. Nancy Watkins, Director of the Educational Direct Doctorate Program and Associate Professor at Cal State Fullerton. She is currently, and she's speaking now, as a candidate running for Area 3, that seat on the Orange County Board of Education. I'm always going to say that so people are clear on which entity we're speaking of. She's challenging Ken Williams, whose district previously encompassed the UCI community and beyond. Area 3 includes the neighborhoods in Fullerton, Berea, Placentia, Yorba Linda, Orange, Foothill Ranch, Villa Park, Central North Irvine, Portola Hills, Anaheim Hills, portions of Lake Forest and Tustin. So looking at the board dynamics, the board composition, I want to set this up for listeners. Our candidate, of course, is quite clear on all this. The recent appointment by the board of Jorge Valdez to fill the seat in 2022 vacated by Vecchi Gomez, who won a seat on the Tustin City Council, that was the board appointing their own. He is now up for re-election along with Ken Williams, an incumbent adjacent to our area, and Tim Shaw. I tried to interview Tim Shaw four years ago. He withdrew his availability. So when listeners want to know what, why am I skewing it, the candidates decide who's going to be making themselves available. So given that, I mean, Becky Gomez was kind of a, a, a dissenting voice on the board. She would be the one to say, I'll, you know, she could express to the public what she's witnessing, what's going on that we all can't be privy to. So you'd be kind of like a Becky Gomez dissenting voice were you to be elected this March 5th. And so how do you make yourself as effective as possible in that political dynamic? I love this question because I really do believe education needs allies. And any time that there is what I see the board currently as is an echo chamber, you need a dissenting voice, an inquiring voice to ask questions and raise different perspectives so that there is more discourse instead of just blind decisions in quick moments. Uh, Ken Williams has served on the board for 28 years. He was uh, first elected in 1996. And in 28 years, the world has changed and education has changed. And actually, uh, Trustee Shaw and Trustee Valdez were both appointed. So with three seats up in the March 5th election, we could change the dynamic of the board. But if I am the sole con you know, candidate that is successful, I know that I can be a, an alternate voice in the spirit of Becky Gomez. I can ask hard questions. I can ask informed questions and truly bring the dialogue to the public. So while we're talking about the board, we need to talk about the other institutional fact on the ground is the way in which the districts were drawn by the board. And I completely missed that detail when I was interviewing Mari Barkey in 2022. So what I want to draw listeners attention to is that the district, it's a pretty interesting kind of, I would call it a gerrymander because Irvine is split in half. And that gives us a potentially different kind of outcome on where the votes are. I mean, the, the Irvine Unified School District has a particular kind of uh, political 
pedagogical sensibility compared to when you split it up and portions go up to, toward Yorba Linda and Placentia and the other portion toward uh, the more conservative coastal communities. So I, I want you to maybe want to talk about how this mapping has created really hard structural sorts of facts in, in the policy ground. It's a really interesting process to watch how district maps are, are drawn. And the current maps that are being used for this election were drawn by the Citizens Committee on District Reorganization. However, the school, the Orange County Board of Education did not like the maps that were presented by the committee. And so they provided their own version of the maps. There was actually a lawsuit that came out of this disagreement over how the maps should be drawn, but the map in this current election was the one that was drawn by uh, the citizens for the or reorganization of committees. And it's actually a fairly democratic process because it's a committee that's made up of nominees from all of the different school districts. Oh, it was. Yes. And now here's the another challenge is with only five trustees to represent Orange County, our districts are massive. So area three, where I am running as a candidate, has 388,000 voters and covers seven different school districts. So then we're going to very easily seg into, I had on last week, but we are recording this February 9th, people, so if you're a little confused about some of our data points here. So State Senator Josh Newman is sponsoring a bill that would add two more seats and move the election from the primary to the general, which would, as people who know Political Science 101, the more the any election that's run on a general election that that is always going to be more representative more people turn out not enough people turn out in primaries so it as he described it it would be a more representative measure in here in orange county so that's is it only orange county that is in that legislation i forgot to ask him that but so is just addressing that or there are problems elsewhere in the so state i believe it is senate bill 907 and i have yes, not exactly. read i haven't read the actual legislation um, and but it's very rare that there would be state legislation that would only apply to a single county uh, what i also know about sb 907 is that the orange county board at their february 7th meeting agreed to a resolution opposing the expansion of the board. Uh, Trustee Shaw... How did, that, how did that sound? What was the back and forth there? What were the points made? Uh, it was actually, in, in the resolution, uh, it discusses that this was a political move to stop the board from approving charter schools. That was in the resolution. So you can look back at the agenda from the February 7th Orange County Board of Education meeting, and when the minutes are released in a week or so, you'll be able to see it or watch the video and hear that resolution presented and passed. Okay. So that's a, that was against, of course, that doesn't impact SB 907 at the state level. Uh, I think more representation is good representation because then you have uh, a liaison to your community that can represent your interests, can hear from you, and and represents how you know, all of these different districts have very different needs. So I think greater representation can be a very positive thing. Well, I'm just listening. I'm trying to. It is policy. It's not just politics, but by them preparing the resolution with that kind of language, it's sort of the bat phone for all the, the charter school supporters. So it's sort of 
rallying voters in the primary, and it's it's sending a lot of ideological, dogmatic messages for people to sign on to. Uh, wow, that's and, so. And it's I, got huge ripple effects. I think so, and and I do want to speak to to one other point, which is about moving this election into yes. the November general. Uh, we for all the reasons that you describe the lower voter turnout, but also the county board elections in March. Um, are one and done, like it's not a primary. And so as people think about the March primary, they think that there's gonna be another chance to make a decision in, in November, and there is no other chance. This is it. It's so one and done, it doesn't make sense to have it in the primary, it should be in the November general. I hope it's not a voter suppression tactic by the board. So, uh, well, that's, uh, that's, listeners for you to continue to process that along with the host here. So with this dynamic, the current board's affiliation with national ideological movements, such as the Hillsdale College, I'm going to call it out because it's something people aren't aware of, or if once they're made aware of, it's still a lot to track with so many other public policies flooding our attention. Uh, so that's the brain trust, and those are the resources that are available to Tim Shaw, Ken Williams, and Jorge Valdez. So I'd like to know who's in your brain trust and which sort, what groups do you associate with that tell us who is, who's in your inner ear and whose resources are you able to, to rally to gather up in order to challenge this formidable incumbency? So I would say I am supported by teachers. And of course, my background in education, I am a teacher. It's it's what I have done. So I know that there is sometimes a spin on the support by teachers being, uh, you know, it's union. I've been called a union thug. But since the Supreme Court decision in Janus, the teacher membership in CTA is voluntary. So I believe that I am supported by teachers. As a researcher, um, as a specialist in educational policy, I also do my own research and think my own thoughts. Uh, but I have access to a wealth of experts and national research related to what's good for kids, uh, what the movements are nationally. And I think that you have to be open-minded when it comes to making policy to really do an analysis from multiple perspectives. So I, I guess one could say your brain trust is also your own kind of professional, your professional work that you understand pedagogy. I'm, I'm looking around at the bios I've done with the other candidates that are incumbents that are serving currently, and I don't see that kind of background in what they bring to making policy. It's rare to see an educator want to serve on the school board, but I taught high school for, well, I was in the classroom for 25 years and a site and a district administrator for my last five years. Uh, when you are in front of a classroom of 38 high school students and teaching government and economics and trying to prepare them to be, you know, involved, productive, good citizens, you get a different perspective about what the needs are related to education. Uh, you know, and I parlayed that into my own research. Um, my, my master's degree was in public policy, a general policy area, always with a, a you know, in, an interest in what was happening in education. 
but really through my doctoral studies and my research, which was on how teachers can influence education reform. That was the topic of my dissertation here from UCI. I think that you gain a different perspective. And now in my current role, I'm preparing the next generation of educational leaders. I'm preparing the next group of people who are going to lead our schools and lead our policy. And I learn from them and their research. It's, it's a really powerful network. And I do think it is rare for someone with my experience and expertise to serve on a school board. So with that in mind, preparing leaders and all that. Let's talk about the setting for the Placentia, your Belinda Unified School District, where at many board meetings, more and more students are adamantly defending what they want to uh, see as strengthening of their public education experience. So do you want to talk about that demographic that they are, there's more and more students that are signing on to defending public education against this dogma of the charter schools and the parental choice that is the kind of um, the red meat that's thrown out. Yeah, there's been quite a bit of politicalization of educational terms. I was really proud of the students in Placentia Yorba Linda. This is, of course, after I'd retired from the district when a lot of the, the current debate began. But there was a group of students from Yorba Linda High School that were part of an organization called Diversify Our Narrative. And they were vocal to the school board. They have, you know, just done their own work and their own research. And it was devastating to watch how they were attacked in giving public comment to the board. They were um, told that they were, uh, didn't know what they were talking about, that um, they, they were set up, that they were receiving extra credit. And this truly was a generation that wants to use their voice and share their truth. And that's powerful. I loved that. Placentia or Belinda is an interesting district. It's a big district. Um, but it's also somewhat segregated. On the west side of the district, it tends to be lower income, higher Latinx population. And on the east side of the different district, the socioeconomic uh, and demographic makeup is very different. And so oftentimes in a district with such diverse schools, it's hard to make a single policy and have equity. Um, I know that the, I've heard board members in Placentia or Belinda say they don't want equity, they want equality. But in a district that's as diverse as PYL, to hear from the students, hey, this is what's happening on the ground, demonstrate the importance of equity and being able to think through how it impacts different school sites. So uh, jumping off from the equity and with this ideological divide we're talking about, I'm moving now, zooming up a little bit higher. When I interviewed the candidates in 2022, and uh, we talked about the funds that the Board of Education were using to defend their appeals of denials of certain charter school applications. So uh, we talked about five and seven million dollars outlay and I said was that is that the floor because I anticipated there was going to be more legal fees to cover what the Board of Education wanted to accomplish. So where, and I'm, I'm looking around in the media coverage and it's, it's dropped off, but where, what since the summer of 2022 has been expended to defend what the incumbents of the Orange County Board of Education want to accomplish? 
So the numerous lawsuits that the, in just in the last five years, um, that the Orange County Board of Education has launched against Governor Newsom, against the State Superintendent of Public Construction, against the Committee on Reorganization. They've also defended against several Brown Act violations um, that require uh, their own attorney whom they who the board has hired even though they have access to the department's legal counsel the board orange county board of education chose to hire their own legal counsel outside of the system so it's a legal retainer which can be quite an expensive tab and which is is allowed allowable uh, when you are when you cannot use the legal counsel that has been provided the challenge and one of the things I'd like to learn more about is at the cost now of over $10 million in just legal fees. And that has been documented at several of the Orange County Board of Education meetings. Um, every, uh, it's interesting because the receipts, I'm sorry, the invoices from the legal counsel are itemized, but uh, they are redacted to see what the itemization is. So you can see the multiple charges, but you cannot see what the charges uh, are. But the lead attorney for the Orange County Board of Education makes on average around $25,000 a month just in his fees, in addition to the, the fees from um, the rest of his firm. And some of the lawsuits have been dismissed, that one went to summary judgment, others are still in process. And the first bout of lawsuits were related to COVID protocols. So now, you know, four years later, perhaps we could resolve those those lawsuits <laughs> uh, and stop wasting this this taxpayers money and that is a zero sum proposition you use that for out of house legal retainers that is funds not available for the curriculum development for the general population or now the demographic that we talked about in the beginning of the interview. That is money not available to do any of that program development. Exactly. And I've actually heard members from the diocese, in fact, Trustee Valdez, Valdez made a comment that it's such a small percentage of what the county department does that it's inconsequential. And I'm thinking, no, any waste, it's waste. Like there's no budget for the board to be able to spend taxpayers' money to the tune of $10 million over the last five years, uh, it, it does impact kids. I mean, I think um, one of the other candidates who's running against Tim Shaw, David Johnson, mentioned that that's about $3,300 for every student that is currently served in the county system. And that, to me, is significant. Was there an audible reaction to Valdez's claim that it's inconsequential amount of money? I was in the room, and yes, uh, However, there's nobody on the dais to refute or question those claims. $3,300 per student. Wow. So how do you, with this composition we talk about, were you elected to be on the board and we have the current composition otherwise, re-elected in other words? So how... Would you work with those obstacles to get the most out of your position on the Orange County Board of Education? I believe in speaking truth and backing it up with evidence and being able to uh, challenge or create through inquiry conversation around decision making at least illuminates for the public the process. And I think that that's a, a, a important thing in a democracy is that you do have a dissenting voice. 
there, that there can be another opinion that should be considered. Uh, and, and so I, I, while I would really like to think that David Johnson in Area 4, B. Mendoza in Area 1, and myself in Area 3 will be successful to truly change the dynamic of the Orange County Board of Education in this election, I also have steeled myself to be uh, the one voice. I can channel Becky Gomez as she successfully asked questions and influenced the votes of the board. And I, maybe this is just the start of change, but we have to have that first drop to get the wave. So the hardest question that I still have gotten no answer I could hang my head on is when people are running for local offices, how are you getting voters to participate down ballot? So I absolutely love what my campaign has adopted, which is vote up because the bottom of the ballot has the most direct impact on your local situation, on you. So instead of thinking down ballot, we're saying vote up, vote bottom up. Uh, and so if you go to the bottom of the ballot, that's where you'll find the county board of education. There's also a state proposition. Uh, that's one. But what I have found is that engaging voters and really sifting through some of the narratives that they're hearing from different sources and asking questions to understand what are the issues that they're concerned with? Uh, what have they seen outside of rumor and conjecture? What have you seen? What have your kids experienced? What have your grandkids experienced? Uh, your niece who's a teacher, what is she saying about what's happening in the classrooms? And it's through our canvassing, our walking, knocking, and talking in those conversations with voters that is not only educating people about what the county board does, because that's not often understood, no, it's but not. also about the importance of paying attention to local races and how school boards statewide, particularly in Orange County, have really become a battleground of ideology. So I have to hasten to interject on the bottom of the ballot in the portion of Irvine that's in your Area 3 race. There is also a charter amendment to expand the city council and district. It's a, it's a big civic proposition for people to bone up on that. So for part of Irvine, who's in Area 3, they're going to have a lot going on in the vote up proposition that you're talking about. So that's huge. Well, as we close, I'd like for you to make some kind of a closing statement, how people can follow you, some up and coming. You can start with February 9th that we're recording this at, but where people can have a chance to meet with you and talk to you about what the board is up to. Well, thank you. I Yes. So March 5th is a couple weeks away. And if what I really hope people will take away is the power of their vote and that if they have already received their ballot to look through their sample ballot, to read all of the statements, uh, to make informed decisions. So you can find out more about my platform on my website, which is Nancy Watkins, the number four OC.com, Nancy Watkins for OC.com. And we in our campaign are out every single weekend walking neighborhoods. In fact, I'll be in Irvine s Sunday. I'm trying to remember. Dates. So dates because uh, of the pre-recording. Yes. So we will be canvassing in different neighborhoods in Irvine. So look for us in your neighborhood very, very soon. Uh, and, you know, it's great to have the conversation and bring your questions. I, I like having the conversations. I like thinking and hearing from what people have to say, thinking about and hearing what people are saying around education. Well, I want to thank you for all your time coming in studio to 
go over all of these details. So thank you very much, Dr. Watkins, for being on Ask a Leader. It's my pleasure. I en enjoy the hard questions. Thank you. My guest was Dr. Nancy Watkins, Director of the Educational Doctor Program and Associate Professor at Cal State Fullerton. She's running for the Area 3 seat on the Orange County Board of Education, challenging incumbent Ken Williams. Area 3 includes Fullerton, Brea, Placentia, Yorba Linda, Orange, Foothill Ranch, Villa Park, Central and North Irvine, Portola Hills, Anaheim Hills, portions of Lake Forest and Tustin. This is on the March 5th primary ballot, one and done. We'll be right back in just a short change here with Max Ukropin in the studio. He's running as a Republican in California's 47th Congressional District in the March 5th primary election. <music> Welcome back to the show. My guest in this segment is financial technology entrepreneur Max Ukrapina, who is running as a Republican in the California 47th Congressional District in the March 5th primary election. That's two weeks away, folks. Some of you already dropped yours off, your ballots. The California 47th Congressional District includes Costa Mesa, Huntington Beach, Irvine, Newport, and Seal Beach, and portions of Laguna Beach, Laguna Hills, and Laguna Woods. I shall remind listeners, with Congresswoman Katie Porter vacating the seat, it's an open race, and one of the most, well, I'm not overplaying this, this modifier, it's the most competitive congressional races in the USA. A career in various sales jobs, Max Ukrapina's latest positions are in financial technology, as advisor and consultant in his own firm, previously CEO founder at Float, a credit app for couples, and director of business development, Acorns. For a year and a half, he served on former Congressman John Campbell's legislative staff back in the day. He completed his Bachelor of Science in Business Administration and Entrepreneurship at USC. He joins me live. Everybody knows how much I like that in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Max Ugrapina. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have as many candidates as I can squeeze in just two weeks away here. So all these candidate interviews aren't such, they're such brief introductions to listeners. I'm encouraging everyone to stay on uh, with the questions here so that voters can better gauge your potential to represent us in Congress. So without you having a record in elected office, I'd like to find out, um, it, you know, certainly why you decided you want to run for Congress and looking at your what you're doing, you're sort of reversing the micro of your enterprise profession to the macro of policymaking in Congress. Why are you running in this particular race? Yeah, I'm just in my ticked off phase of life. I'm, I'm unhappy with Washington. I can't sit by anymore and watch as our country continues to go down the toilet. Um, I prayed about it. And my wife and I discussed it for a very short amount of time and realized that there was no other option for us to fix this unless I jumped into the, this race. As you said, this is an extremely important congressional district, uh, but we have to win it as Republicans. And then I fear having the wrong kind of Republicans in there that continue to make this problem worse. So I would like to find what what committees would you most like to be serving on in U.S. Congress? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because as a freshman, uh, mostly you get pretty 
bad committees when you get in there. But what's different is that we are a really important congressional district. We're the credit card for all uh, political races on both sides of the aisle. So you kind of get it. You could get a better committee early on as a freshman or freshman woman. Um, but ways and means uh, would be would make a lot of sense as well as, you know, given my financial background, being on financial services. Uh, but really, I'm looking forward to doing the hard work in whatever committee I'm, I am in, uh, which is I don't think is what Washington is doing right now. So the geopolitical fault line goes right through Speaker House of Representative Mike Johnson's office. Mm-hmm. How closely are you following the Russian invasion of Ukraine and your, your position on aiding that sovereign nation, Ukraine? How closely am I tied to Speaker Johnson? Are you watching the invasion in Ukraine and what is your yeah, position I, I w- on supporting a sovereign nation defending themselves? Yes, yeah, sovereign nation absolutely has the right to defend itself. I mean, that's the if you're if you're a nation, you can't defend yourself, then you're not a nation at all. So, you absolutely every nation has a right to defend itself. Full stop. Supporting Ukraine, U.S. Oh, supporting uh, so the Ukraine. fault line going through Speaker Johnson's office. Yeah, so uh, uh, right now there's a lot of bills out there to give funding to Ukraine and Israel and all these other things. I have been very firm and very public about this, and I do not think that we should be funding further funding to Ukraine until we get our border figured out. Right now we, hit, we are, as you are saying, getting invaded as a sovereign country. We need to solve our border crisis before we solve someone else's because we're going to continue to pass the buck. And we have, in the last three years, probably close to 10 million people that have crossed the border. Um, so let's figure out our, our border first, then we can have the discussion about someone else's. The speaker, though, tabled um, the proposal coming from the Senate that was a bipartisan immigration package. Yes. So the urgency was there, and then the urgency dissipated. So yeah. how would you reconcile that as a candidate for yeah, U.S. Congress? Was, um, I don't know exactly what the, the amounts were. It was like $60 billion or something to Ukraine, and I think only 18 to our own border. So I, I didn't like the bill. I never liked the bill, so I would have voted down that Senate bill for sure. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Max Ukwapina, financial technology entrepreneur. He's running as a Republican in the California 47th Congressional District in the March 5th primary election. So the throughout the 47th Congressional District, we see an evidence mm-hmm. of a lack of leadership. I'm asking all the candidates the congressional as well as the state Senate candidates, that's the purview for all of you, uh, about, I want to talk about the, the lack of leadership and planning and the choices of infrastructure. Just completed, we've all seen it, the four total carpool lanes that were added to I-405, mm-hmm. and then there's the I-15 that's also in a, the process of a an environmental consideration of whether the added lanes there are going to be in violation of the attainment non-attainment status for Southern California. But I, I want to talk about your what you see your roles in supporting, uh, providing leadership for a 2024 fix. We also have repeated closures of the Los Angeles-San Diego-San Obispo Rail Corridor, or LOSAN for short. Could, uh, so I'd like to know 
what you would offer as a congressional member leadership in the fixes that don't add more congestion but are sort of on par with what is being built out in other countries that are infrastructure to deal with the emissions problem, the congestion problem. Yeah, I mean, um, when it comes down to, I mean, I, I'm not going to be a master planner of transportation, but I think it's we appropriations, do need to, to appropriations. And yeah, so I think we do need to invest more into our infrastructure, the things that matter. We need more roads. Um, we have a, a need for more cars going forward and. If we have traffic, we need to make sure we have surface transportation solutions to um, reduce congestion, but not reduce the transfer of people moving around or of industry. So I think right now you have a lot of these solutions that happened. I, I just hearing on the radio on the way here that uh, measure HLA or something like that. They want to have a traffic diet in Los Angeles, which would force everyone onto bikes and reduce cars. And that would be terrible and uh, make L.A. even worse. Yeah. So, okay, and and the the Losan corridor, it's the one of the busiest corridors in the country, mm -hmm. rail corridors. And uh, Mike Levin from the south part of the county is trying to work with all the intergovernmental connections to to address that and it's it's going to take a big lift of mm -hmm. appropriating funds and planning because it's not working we keep getting more and more erosion washouts of that vital it's an economic development tool so what would be your role in supporting yeah. a long-term solution to little sands corridors totally yeah if, if if we're having you know rail and road closures because of these things like we do need long-term planning i think that's what's been lost inside of congress and in california too is we forget long-term planning uh when it comes to our infrastructure we haven't created new dams in a long time we haven't created new power plants in a very long time uh, so we need to get this stuff done um, it's not sexy it's not fun but we shouldn't have road or rail closure so yes i would be in total favor of making sure that the trains run on time and continue to do that so yeah i, I would have to look into that exact thing that uh mike levin is proposing but from what you're talking about it sounds like it could be good well he's sort of like the maitre d yeah. of the fix he's bringing yeah. all the agencies the department of transportation uh the federal level and all the way to to local governments that are represented there and, and right there looking at how it's how it's not working okay so let's go into the air traffic controller shortage you may be reading about it's jeopardizing uh, air travel safety I mean we're just we've had lots and lots more near misses part of the problem would go back to when uh, in the 1980s when thousands of air traffic controllers were on strike so mm. uh, th at that time the federal aviation administration hired new controllers and now it's their retirement 20 years later so how would you step up and support the infrastructure that is keeping air traffic safe yeah i mean if, if we have a hiring problem we have to look at why we're having issues hiring the right people that are good enough to be air traffic controllers i mean that is an extremely important position is to make sure our planes land and fly safely um yeah i, I would have to look deeply into that issue when it comes to hiring and see why is it hard to find these people is it a, a salary issue is it a training issue do we need more training are we requiring certain requirements of these people frankly i haven't looked deep in, into exactly what the air traffic controllers are but i remember 
when that happened, you mentioned the 80s, is that, that when um, they went on strike and President Reagan said, if you go on strike, you're all fired. I think that was correct. That's what happened. Yeah. So, oh. so we're going to now move into health care measures. And uh, I'd like to know, uh, taking a broader look, you can select which of the areas that you would see you would like to expand, uh, develop further. There's the matter of medical insurance, affordable senior care options, because we're, we're actually covering that. And there's long COVID, which is casting a huge health liability shadow over many people's well-being. And it's a, it's, it's a financial hit there, too. Affordable pharmaceutical coverage and reproductive health. So in that general look at healthcare, what would you want to spend your attention on? Yeah, I think we need more. Uh, we need to bring costs down. And it's extremely expensive. The United States has one of the highest costs or the highest costs in the world. Um, and we need to have more competition in insurance. I think that's really important. If we can start competing across state lines to bring those costs down, that'd be really, really important. Um, as well as actually look into and audit what we're spending money on, whether it be when we're looking at Medicare, Medi-Cal, like who, who's making the money here and how can we bring those costs down? Because we haven't done that yet. Our costs continue to increase for all of us and it's hurting the taxpayer as well as the insurance payer and the you know the family at the end that has to pay for these things. So I, I, I'm not looking for more government intervention. I think that's made it all worse. But I think we need to look at actually bringing those costs down through cutting a lot of the fat and increasing competition within insurance companies um, and, you know, having creative solutions when it comes to their, you know, different health shares and health plans that are kind of outside of the normal thing that are putting more risk on private companies to to insure these people instead of the government. So and you said less government intervention. How does that square with what the Republican leadership is contemplating in terms of a national abortion ban. How does health insurance have to do with a national abortion No, no, abortion I'm saying ban? you said less government intervention. Yeah. So I want to square that with a proposal coming through. We have Alabama Supreme Court mm -hmm. uh, ruling on the IVF embryo is a child. So we, we can see there is amazing momentum behind intervening in decisions that are made. So I want to know, would you support a national ban on abortions? Were you a member of Congress? Yeah, so you know, I've been on record saying this, that um, you know, what happened after the Dobbs decision that reversed Roe v. Wade, it pushed it down to the state. Um, and now we have it in California that's enshrined in our Constitution. This area and the rest of the California voted to protect abortion. Um, and so I p do not plan on acting anything different in Congress. So, so if that were on a bill placed before you and your leadership is looking at you, 47th Congressional District yeah. member, what's your vote? My district has already said that they want to protect abortion. I, I, I am personally pro-life, but the district has voted a different way. And so that's something that I don't want to be a champion of in Congress which is it's very sad, but that's the reality. And then uh, let's let's talk about that. It's it interests me a great deal. I've learned so much from the, there's a stellar epidemiologist that mm -hmm. is on the faculty at UC Irvine. Mm -hmm. A little shout out to Andrew Neumer. I can't help but do that. I, I didn't expect I'd do that. But 
Um, and so we've learned a great deal about the whole public health piece of yeah. the COVID pandemic. And so what I'd like to know from state legislators and federal legislators, what your role would be, your, how, to what extent you would support public health institutions in the country because they've eroded considerably mm -hmm. both in terms of their effective leadership and their actual staffing needs being met. So we will, it's not a matter of if, it's when, there will be a more lethal pandemic that's going to come our way. Maybe more than one kind of strain of infection. Mm -hmm. So what would your role be in Congress to build the public health structure up to something that could respond to a more lethal pandemic. Yeah, I think this is COVID was the first of our pandemic in our lifetime. I mean, the last time there was a global pandemic, you know, our grandparents were barely around. So I think it's what concerns me is how much power the global health as well as our national health organizations took over during COVID. So I would want to make sure that we actually have more oversight onto these because I was very unhappy with what happened nationally. And I think there was a lot of hysteria that happened and we, we shut down schools, we shut down people's businesses, people were fired from their jobs. So I, that's a recent memory for me. And I was extremely unhappy with what happened nationally. So I would make sure to push back um, and not want to use scare tactics of a larger pandemic to come to push policies that are very, very dangerous, more dangerous than the actual pandemic. I mean, we've, we've destroyed kids' lives that are in school. Um, people were fired from their jobs because they didn't want to get vaccinated. I mean, that was bad stuff. Well, I, I've learned not just from the epidemiologist about this public health, the broader picture of keeping everyone safe. And, mm -hmm. and where to do that. But I've also had the disaster, uh, there are emergency physicians who are, they call it's disaster uh, mm -hmm. medicine. And so and they, they say that disaster medicine is about 20 years behind what it should be with the, or comparable to other medical advances. Mm -hmm. So people get an amnesia about how bad a, a emergency medical situation is or disaster like like we were looking at like the Boston Marathon bombing that yeah. was that's disaster medicine is mm -hmm. how many people you have to treat in a in a triage a trauma fast or, uh, so yeah. I'm just trying to hear from what your answer is if you see that there is a need to to build the infrastructure up so that it can message better it can uh, bring the best science and all bring and protect people. I'm I'm hearing you saying it's getting in people's way, but I'm I yeah, want to reverse I, the role and say there is a protection measure, and that takes resources to be effective in protecting the public. Yeah, yeah, I I would definitely push back on that because you know we have military industrial complex, we have the education industrial complex, we have the medical industrial complex of these people that need to build up and build out ammunition for us to fight this unknown thing. So I, I think it is very dangerous for us to spend money and time and effort um, on things that we may not know what's happened. Obviously, we have to prepare for some things going forward. But um, no, I, I, I don't think we should give uh, bureaucrats more power in this country just because something may or may not happen. I think that's a really dangerous precedent. Um, so no, I... I I would not be a champion of that. I, I, I look forward to cutting back the federal government, you know, across the board. 
especially this stuff that I think is is not worthy of the tax dollar. So I'm I'm going to still stay on public health. Yeah. And it's the purview of Congress, a predecessor in representing when we were uh, in the the earlier mapping of the the coastal cities. That predecessor was working on committees to deal with the, and I, I have to break it down, the, if you're familiar with the PFAS, it's the polyfluoroalkyl substances that Congress sets standards for how many PFC parts per, I mean, it's like really small level yeah, of it. Million. So right. I want to know what you as a congressional member would do to oversee and set standards that keep the drinking water safe for the public's consumption. Yeah, I think drinking water is one of the most important things a government can do. You know, you look down at like our, our cities here in, in, in California, I think they're their top things that things they have to do is keep our water safe. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I don't know exactly where I stand on what level of PFAS is going to be in our water. Um, but water should be clean. I mean, that, that is a basic utility that we need. Um, I would push to make sure that the state and local governments have the most control of the drinking water. Um, again, I, I'm not a fan of the federal government stepping in and telling Irvine that they're doing a poor job. Of course, there should be some, maybe some really you know, normal national standards, but... Um, there's bigger things to fry at the national level and it's in the city charter in California to manage the water. That's how, that's how our government works in the state of California. So the cities and, you know, local municipalities and counties should be in charge of that. Some guy in Washington should not be in charge of Costa Mesa's water. I, I just don't think it should be that way. Okay. There, uh, there's a lot to say about it because it's a, a very persistent chemical. The trend is for, lower and lower parts totally. per million Very, yeah. that affect the safety of our water. So here's the, uh, the last minute, thank you, for yeah. uh, where people can see uniform. I think there is no longer a, a, a debate. That's correct. So tell us where else people can hear you talk about your your platforms. Yes. So thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is great. Uh, again, this is Max Ukrapina running for 47th District, our district here in Irvine and a little further they can go to maxforoc.com. They can check out where I stand on the issues. They can reach out, go on social media, all these things. But maxforoc.com, very simple. And you can vote in two weeks. So we're two weeks out. Oh, you can primary. vote now. It's true. I, yeah. I mean, we've we're been halfway able to. Through. Yeah, we're, that, we're watching that. So, we're halfway through. Well, I want to thank you so thank much you. for coming all the way in studio today, Max Ukrapina. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My guest was Max Ukrapina, financial technology entrepreneur, and he's running as a Republican in the California 47th Congressional District. And that's for the primary uh, March 5th, already underway. This district includes Costa Mesa, Huntington Beach, Irvine, Newport, and Seal Beach, and portions of Laguna Beach, Laguna Hills, and Laguna Woods. The district's currently represented by Congresswoman Katie Porter, and it's an open seat, so it's a much, much watched train, folks. That's my wrap. Next week, the final candidates I'll be covering are Crystal Miles running in the California State Senate District 37 and Allison Munoz Dimakoulos running in the California 40th Congressional District. Other candidates to whom I reached out in the Senate 37th District have not responded. Talk with you next week. 
thank you everyone for listening. 